Hi there, I'm Liz, and welcome to The Growlery. This is a space all about having fun with critical thinking, maybe hearing a different perspective than yours, and getting a few laughs in, because thinking about things is far too important to be taken seriously. Here we discuss and think through the media artifacts this crazy, unstable world produces, from books, movies, music, video games, and for today's topic, we're talking about Tiffany D. Jackson's controversial book, Monday's Not Coming. So hello, hello, hello to all new and returning listeners. It's so wonderful to have you here today, whether you're here for the first time or you've been listening to every episode so far, or you're just here to listen to me rant about banned books in American schools. You are awesome, and I hope you're all doing well. I know life can get crazy and stressful, so as a friendly reminder, don't forget to check in with yourself. As for me, I've been doing okay, you know, doing my monotonous day job, replaying Final Fantasy VIII purely for the story inconsistencies, and reading like the hermit crab that I am. Now, I wasn't too sure how to begin today's episode, so I will begin with a disclaimer. This is just a reminder that the following episode will contain topics that are hard to hear and triggering at times, but these topics are important to understand and to be talked about. With that said, today's topic does talk about crimes against children, the ethics of media and true crime reporting and coverage on crimes slash missing persons, especially within minority communities, abuse, trauma, and grief. To give a quick and extremely loose outline on how this episode will go, because God knows nothing I do goes to plan, and fingers crossed that I don't ramble, is that I'll talk about the author, talk about what the book is about, why the book has been banned, and responses to those bans. From there, I'll walk through parts of the story and use lines and scenes from the book to talk about the topics that I listed in my warning. So without further ado, Let's talk about Tiffany D. Jackson. Tiffany D. Jackson is a New York Times bestselling author and has received the Coretta Scott King slash John Steptoe Award for New Talent. She was born in New York and grew up in Brooklyn Heights, which is a neighborhood of Brooklyn and currently does live in Brooklyn from what I gathered on the internet. She received a Bachelor's of Arts in Film from Howard University and received a master's in media studies from the New School University. Aside from that, she has over a decade's worth of experience working in the television industry for companies like National Geographic, Rock Nation, BET, Fuse, BBC America, just to name a few. On her website, writeinbk.com, you can find more information about her work history But something I wanted to make sure to note, because I think it's really, really cool, is that she wrote and directed a short horror film in 2009 called The Field Trip. And The Field Trip is like a Blair Witch found footage short film about how on October 31st of 2008, six Harlem high school students were sent as a punishment for their delinquent behavior to a a haunted Halloween trail attraction. And then they were never seen again. A year later, their camera was found. And then we get to see what was on that camera. And I have a link in the description to the YouTube videos that I found that I believe is from her account. I couldn't verify that. Either way, it's there. 
and it's about like 18 minutes. So give it a give it a watch. I do hope that someday she gets some more time or funding to make more horror films because I don't know. I just I think that's just really cool to even be able to like put together an 18 minute film or even any of her books get turned into like movie adaptations. I'm really hoping for that because these stories that she creates are pretty freaking cool. I just read Monday's Not Coming, but now I have her book Allegedly, which was an NAACP Image Award nominee for Outstanding Literary Work for Youth slash Teens, and The Weight of Blood next on my read list. If you want to get the full synopses, synopsises, anyways, of her work, definitely go visit her website. The link is in the show notes along with her Twitter handle and Instagram. Before we move on to what Monday's Not Coming is all about, I do want to share this quote from her website where I saw that she posted an answer to a question about advice to new writers. So, quote, Be strategic and resilient in the pursuit of your dreams. That sounds like a cheesy quote, right? But nah, I'm serious. Resilience is one hell of a quality to master, and not many have the skin for it. End quote. With that, let's now get into Monday's Not Coming. So this book was published in 2018 from Catherine Teigen Books, which is like a sub-company of HarperCollins Publisher. It's an older teen book, so it's being marketed to teens 14 plus. And Monday's Not Coming follows the perspective of a young girl around the age of 13 named Claudia who has to grapple with trying to understand the circumstances, the grief, layers of trauma, and the guilt surrounding the disappearance of her best friend Monday. The story takes place in a neighborhood just outside of Washington, D.C., which is the capital of the United States and is where the majority of the governmental institutions like the White House, Congress, etc. are located. The neighborhood that Claudia and Monday live in is southeast of the Anacostia River in D.C. Specifically, Monday, Claudia's best friend, lives in in the Edborough Complex, which is in the book described as this public housing area in kind of the worst part of an already not-so-great part of town. Claudia lives in a more, I would call, gentrified area of town, probably like a few blocks away from where Monday lives. It's still unsafe, but it's, I guess, quote-unquote, not as bad. And this is just based off of how I'm understanding the descriptions in the book. A way to kind of think about it for me personally, because I I don't live on the East Coast, I've been a West Coaster my whole life, is my neighborhood where I grew up was basically a wasteland. And when I looked into the history of my town, there was literally a quote of somebody saying that it was the most wretched community. And just to give like a little context around the the word wretched in comparison to where I grew up. It's more about the fact that it was kind of in the middle of nowhere and had very poor access to any freeway and the houses are kind of run down. But then if like 
you would drive just a few blocks down, there was a nice new apartment complex that was gated. So that's in my mind, like it's the same town, but within the same town, there's definitely this like older, crustier part and then like a shiny new part. Maybe that made sense. I don't know. That's just how I compared it in my head. So yeah. And just to round this off, the school Warren Kent Charter that Monday and Claudia both go to is a charter school with uniforms. In my head, I see this as more of a well-to-do kind of school. And, you know, if I misunderstood that portion, just please let me know. Mostly because I don't understand charter schools in general. I I always went to public schools all my life, no uniforms with the non-functioning AC units in those bungalow makeshift classrooms. And for some reason, I just keep equating uniforms with better school. I I don't know. That's probably most definitely a, an incorrect assumption, but that is how my brain processed it. The point is, is that I hope this paints a picture on the various levels of environments and class within this community that both Monday and Claudia live in and have to navigate through. From what I've researched, and because while I live in the United States, I am on the other side of the country from Washington, D.C., and I'm very open to any corrections anyone has about the facts that I have found. But from what I researched, this southeast area from the Anacostia River is one of the oldest and from a few sites it claimed that it's a very dangerous area outside of the nation's capital, with it having 38% higher of a crime rate than the rest of D.C. In the book, there is a passage that describes a collective trauma about the area and what this community faces in terms of how it got so bad in terms of crime. So for me, in my copy of the book, this is page 37. Quote, Folks in the Southeast talk about crack often, how crystallized powder turned D.C. into a city of zombies during the 80s and 90s, hitting Southeast the hardest. Crack led to depression, Depression led to crime, and crime led to murders and destruction. Everybody knew somebody affected by it. Daddy's family, Monday's family, church congregations, the mayor, even teachers at school. Over time, folks rebuilt, families healed, but the evidence remained like a funny-shaped cloud that hung above our heads, occasionally blocking the sun with its memories, end quote. So in the description, I have a link that is to an article about kind of an overview of this situation of the rise in drug usage and specifically looking at Washington, D.C. and the crack epidemic that happened to the communities there. When you start reading through what happened, how it started, it's really tragic to see a community just get decimated by a highly addictive drug. And when you think about like the fentanyl crisis that we have today, it's really no different. And these communities still feel the effects of what happened then. And 
It's a trauma that doesn't go away. It's something that there's always going to be a reminder, whether it's your family or there's this lingering stigma on your community because of it. So, you know, read into it, check it out. But it's important to have this context when we think about what is going on within this story. So a last piece of background that I want to give about this area of Washington, D.C. is the rate or the amount of kids that go missing every year from this area, this place that is the nation's capital. From missing.dc.gov's webpage, I found a statistic that basically says between 1,000 and over 2,000 kids go missing each year from the Washington, D.C. area alone. However, when you see numbers like this, I definitely want you to understand that there are factors that go into what gets counted into those numbers. From my understanding, this is just reported missing. The number can't account for those who have never been reported. So with all this background on the setting, this is the reality of the place that Monday and Claudia call home. Monday's Not Coming has been banned for the following reasons in the schools in the state of Virginia, where essentially this book takes place, like it's the general area, because I know that Washington, D.C. considers it like a little separate from Virginia, if I'm understanding that right. Anyways, Texas and Utah. So, it includes explicit language about sex. It includes violence. And that's it. And to both of those, I say, duh. So do a lot of books that are on those approved book lists. And here's why I believe this book has been banned. Because if sex and violence are the only criteria for banning a book, then the Bible should be there too. But you know, that kind of pissed off some people in Utah. And that article is in the description if you wish to read further into that. But I believe that it's been banned because of a term that's being thrown around to create, I guess, like a sense of fear. And that term is called critical race theory. So those who are against critical race theory coming into K-12 through school curriculum say that it's harming kids' understanding of the world and inherently teaching racism, like it's breeding a racist ideology and it's teaching that America is built on systemic racism and that racism is never going away. However, that's not necessarily what critical race theory is. At its core, it's an analytical lens to look at history, structure of power, laws, etc., and looking at those from a perspective of race and how race as a concept has been used against non-white groups, specifically in the United States. It's a way of understanding history and the origins of current cultural dynamics in relation to race, because nothing exists in a vacuum. Nothing in society starts out of nowhere. It builds over time with progress and regression, which is essentially what history is. Believe it or not, critical race theory is not new. The specific term was coined in academia legal studies around 1970s and the 80s. Now, from what I've seen 
been through, experienced in the American public education system. Schools have always taught structures of power within the United States and race and critical thinking about how the two are intertwined for quite some time, actually. You know, basically teaching kids to critically think about the world around them and why things are the way that they are. And these concepts have been taught even when the people who are protesting and opposing were in school. I mean, they did learn about U.S. history. They learned about settlers taking land from Native Americans. And they learned about slavery in the U.S. at a minimum. There is a nuance to it that I understand is hard to navigate when teaching these concepts like race and structure of power in a classroom, especially when critical thinking is a skill that is being developed within the grades of kindergarten through 12th grade. And also, this just might be a pessimistic attitude, but I don't think teachers are really trying to indoctrinate kids into racist ideologies or like to hate themselves for whatever race that they are or whatever, they're probably more focused on trying to keep the kids awake in class off the cellular phone devices and concerns with chat GPT answering all the questions for them on their tests. And yeah, you know what? I'm just going to leave it at that. This is my opinion. I do have articles and resources that talk about both sides of the debate on critical race theory. Mostly because I believe that it's important to know both sides of a debate in general, and I encourage you to do your research into it and make your own opinions. I also have a video essay from Khadija Embo, who I feel has an extremely balanced and nuanced description on the topic. If you want to start your research, and they have all their sources linked in their video description, so check it out and definitely follow and subscribe because their videos are absolutely phenomenal. And you can just tell right off the bat just how much research and thought goes into each one of their episodes. So yeah, check it out. Monday's Not Coming deals with the themes that critical race theory describes, such as race, as both Claudia and Monday are Black teen girls living in a predominantly Black community and how that affects the treatment they receive from adults of different races, police, and the media. For certain groups of people, these themes can be hard to understand and grapple with, especially when probably doesn't paint their racial group in a good light, and it's also not their lived experience, to put it a little cryptically. It's not a happy story, and it never claimed to be. But it is a reality that I think is important for older teens to understand, and also for teens to feel seen, as stories like Monday's don't often make national headlines. And the reality is, is that kids go missing, and they don't just leave behind their families to grieve, but they leave their friends, their peers, to grieve as well. So in my research, I found an article from an online newspaper called the Loudoun Times Mirror. And Loudoun County is a county in Virginia state. So this is a state in which the book has been banned at schools. So I just wanted to share this article by Jack Leach. And I do have it linked in the show notes as well if you want to read the 
full thing, but I just wanted to focus in on like a an excerpt from his opinion about this book being brought up at a school board meeting and the fact that parents were pushing for Mondays Not Coming to be banned from the school's library. So for a little context before I I quote the section, Jack is a father with a 14-year-old at the time of this article being written. And he's saying this as a response as to what's happening within, I believe, his daughter's school district. Quote, to gauge whether or not the complaints were legitimate, I read the book and I loved it. It was powerful, difficult, and emotional. It also contained some uncomfortable moments, but then so does life even for middle school and high school students. I wholeheartedly endorse this book and hope kids read it. Although the complainers read actual snippets from the books that contain sexual encounters, these encounters were not glorified. They were wrapped up in emotional stress, peer pressure, and the confusion that comes with puberty and early encounters with sexuality. Monday's Not Coming is not about sex. Rather, it's about dyslexia, parenting, church, community, friendship, race, post-traumatic stress disorders, child abuse, and the idea that sometimes adults don't listen to children, even though they should. This book should be available to our students because there are students who have questions and concerns about their lives and their friends, but don't know who to turn to. And for other students who suffer no hardships... They will learn about the diversity of our country and region, and perhaps they'll be more sympathetic to classmates who are clearly dealing with distress, end quote. And I do want to share a Twitter post that Tiffany D. Jackson posted that I think actually sums up why banning a book like this is kind of ridiculous and also shows us why she is, in fact, a legend. So... In response to an article about the Goddard School District banning her book in 2021, she responded with, quote, These fragile nincompoops are banning books about missing Black children. Like, can your racism be any louder? Can't wait for the day when your kids, the ones you're trying to quote-unquote protect by banning books, put your old asses in trash nursing homes. Because they know nothing about compassion. And the only large print books on the shelves for you to read are mine. Hope that red cover haunts you. End quote. And if you do see the cover of Monday's Not Coming, I'll post that on, on Instagram. It's a very bright red book. And with that glorious note, let's talk about the story. I'm going to skip over character intros for this one as we're going to be talking more about the themes and the concepts that this book covers. Just to start, if you're into non-linear stories, then this book is definitely for you. This book takes you through the months of the year and each month begins with a beautiful piece of prose to introduce that month. And these pieces of prose are the feelings of Claudia moving through the different time periods of the year. Within each section of, like, the September section or the October section, we are given different timelines of events that happen during that month. For instance, 
there is a timeline called Two Years Before the Before, which are the events that Claudia is experiencing two years before Monday goes missing. One year before the before are the events that Claudia is experiencing one year before Monday goes missing. The before is before Monday is found, and it's Claudia's investigation into the disappearance. Then there's the after. This is a timeline that takes place two years after Monday is found. And there isn't a pattern to how these timelines present themselves within the book, which I personally felt was a really good structural choice for this book. And it was masterful in creating that atmosphere of how grieving and trying to heal from trauma is like. In 1969, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross published her book On Dying and Death, What the Dying Have to Teach Doctors, Nurses, the Clergy, and Their Own Family. Within the book, she provides the infamous five stages of grief, and I know that more have been added since then, but for the purposes of keeping this succinct, I'm just going to list off the five, which are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Now, these stages aren't in any linear order, like you're not going to experience denial first, then anger, and so on and so forth. But it's a generalization of what a person who is grieving a loss or a trauma may experience. And the idea is that you're constantly oscillating between all of these emotions on your journey through grieving to healing. The way that this book, Monday's Not Coming, is structured, you as the reader are taken through this roller coaster of all the events and emotions within the four-year span of Claudia's life that are surrounding this particular incident. So to start, in my copy of the book, the literal first page, like literally you open the cover and boom, there's the page, has a piece of prose that does come up later on in the October section of the book. But this is what it says. Red flags. Not blush red, orange red, wine, or ruby red. No. Bloody red flags. Did you see them, Claudia? Did you? Did you see any red flags? That's the question they ask me over and over again, hoping to find answers. Hoping to understand what no one could. Signs. Were there any signs Monday was in trouble? Did you see anything out of the ordinary? Anything unusual? No. Nothing. In so many words, they called me a liar. That hurt more than losing my best friend. If Monday were a color, she'd be red. Crisp. Striking. Vivid. You couldn't miss her. A bull's eye in the room. A crackling flame. I saw so much red that it blinded me to any flags. So it's not a spoiler to say that already going into this story, we know that Monday didn't make it. However, 
what this piece of prose is asking the reader to do is participate in Claudia's investigation. It's intended to evoke this kind of hyper-awareness for the reader to pay attention. And it's almost like a challenge that Claudia is giving us saying, I'm going to show you my life. Can you find all the clues and figure out what happened? Were there any signs? How many times did people dismiss things? And there is something else with that idea of figuring out what's going on in the after timeline that I'm not going to cover in this episode, uh, mostly because I personally feel you should read this story and experience it for yourself. And also, I'm personally unsure about how I feel about where I stand with it, It, but it's kind of more of like a personal preference and nothing at all to do with the story. But, you know, if you read this book or have read this book, definitely let me know. I would be very curious to to hear your thoughts on it. So here are a few red flags that I saw on my read through the book. The story begins in the before timeline with Claudia coming home from a vacation with her grandmother who lives in another state, which is Georgia. The first thing Claudia does is try to get a hold of her best friend. But when she goes to call Monday, Monday's phone is out. The call can't connect. When the first day of school rolls around, Monday isn't there. This is Claudia's first clue that something isn't right. Because as she describes, Monday wouldn't miss a day of school. And through the book, you learn that Monday was a very smart girl. She loved to read, loved school, even did Claudia's homework, mostly because she wanted Claudia to go to the same, like, elite high school as her. And Claudia suffers from dyslexia, which none of her teachers or parents caught until after Monday goes missing. Especially when people fall out of their normal routine, it it is a cause for concern. And I'd take Claudia's lead on this one and try to call and check up and see what's happening with that person. Because you never know, maybe they're just having a bad day or something worse happened. Another red flag that I highlighted is in my book on page 16, it says the following. Quote, in all the time I'd known Monday, I'd never been inside her house. Not even once. Ma wouldn't allow it. And neither would Monday, for reasons I wouldn't know until much later. Whenever we dropped Monday at home, Ma would wait for her to walk inside, jittery, looking over her shoulder every second, triple locking the car doors. End quote. So, if someone's not letting you, you as the friend or family, into their home to hang out, but they're always at your place, kind of like how Monday is always at Claudia's house, but it's never the other way around, that is a cause for concern. And I feel like a conversation could be had. Like, hey, are things going okay at your place? Something like that. And pay attention to how they respond and what they respond with because you never know they may have a hundred cats and they know you're allergic and that's why they don't let you in or something really not okay is happening and it's better to ask and let your friend know or family know that you are a safe person to talk to if something isn't right But following this passage, 
Claudia quickly gets a taste as to why Monday never invited her in to her house. So after school, Claudia is really concerned that Monday hasn't called and wasn't at school. So she does something that she's not supposed to, and she goes to Monday's house. Mrs. Charles, Monday's mom, opens the door and literally verbally and physically assaults her and tells her to go away once Miss Charles realizes that the neighbors might be watching her interaction with Claudia. So, yeah, I, I think that right there is your red flag, too, that Miss Charles is capable of violence. Another red flag that I highlighted happens a little later on in the story, and there's this scene with Mrs. Charles in the two years before the before time period. Miss Charles and Claudia's mom are having a conversation that begins with Miss Charles being concerned about a woman who might be being beaten by her husband. In my copy of the book, these are the pages 88 to 90. So the conversation starts like this. Janet, Miss Charles said in a low voice, did you see Deidre's face when she opened that door? My ears perked up at the mention of Shayla's mother. Monday and I caught eyes. Ma pursed her lips. Yes, I did. Miss Charles shook her head. Looked like that man took a foot to her face this time. Ma sighed, her eyes flickering in my direction as Monday and I pretended to not listen, pouring our juice slowly. Well, I'm praying for her. We got to do more than pray, Miss Charles said. That man could kill her. That's private married folks' business. Mrs. Charles' face turned up. They private business ain't so private when it's written all over her face. You can't tell a woman to leave her husband. So what you want them to do? Go to therapy or something? Of course not. Don't need some doctor telling them how to handle family business? Well, at least we agree on that. But no man should put his hands on no female. Not ever. I teach my girls that every day. I live through that long enough to know. I know. But you can't tell a woman to do something she don't want to do. You can tell her mother, though. She'll listen. She go to church with you, don't she? Think of her daughter. Would you want Claudia seeing you that way? Ma blinked hard. Her eyes narrowed, and the room tensed. Monday and I shared a nervous glance. Our mothers weren't best friends. They only tolerated each other for our sake. So we frequently tried to extinguish fires before they spread. Excuse me, Ma, I said timidly. Can we use the computer, please? Ma sniffed before taking her glare off Miss Charles. Still doesn't work, sweet pea. Your father thinks it got some type of virus. Mrs. Charles huffed. You don't want to be messing with them computers anyways. The government, they watching you on those things, tracking your every move. They looking at the food you buy, what music you listen to. Hell, they even watching the books you taken out of the library. Why would they track us at the library? I asked before I could stop myself. Because they want to know what you're reading. She stabbed a finger in her temple. Get inside your head and know what you think so they can... Girls, 
Ma barked, catching wind of her own tone, and cleared her throat. It's getting late. Why don't you all head upstairs and get ready for bed? Monday grabbed her cup, making a run for it. Hate that ass, Mrs. Charles sneered. Where's my kiss? And this is where I'll end this passage. So I know that was a pretty long excerpt, but I found this particular conversation extremely interesting because Miss Charles is so concerned about another woman's well-being, and all the while she's calling her daughter a fat ass and instilling this fear into her daughter about the government watching her every move. It's hypocritical and kind of an unhinged train of thought, but it's not an uncommon pattern with abusers to put up this facade of goodness and righteousness, and then behind closed doors, they're the complete opposite. It caught my eye because I think we've all experienced some kind of conversation or moment where you caught someone saying something really off the cuff or just something that didn't sit right, but then you just dismiss it and, like Claudia's mother, kind of adopt a mentality of, like, it's none of my business and move on with your life. But then when something horrible happens, we kind of retroactively think back to these moments and realize, oh, that was a warning sign. There are a ton of red flags that you can find throughout this book. And just the last one I'm going to mention for this episode happened in the December section of the story in the one year before the before timeline. So Monday and Claudia are fighting a boy named Jacob over a picture that was posted basically bullying and making fun of Monday and Claudia. After the fight ends, Jacob goes to the hospital and Monday and Claudia are in the principal's office. Their parents are called, obviously, because that's standard procedure. And the first parent to arrive is Mrs. Charles, who, after finding out that Monday was in a fight with a boy, says this on page 138 of my copy of the book. So this is Mrs. Charles speaking first. She ain't never acted up in this school before, ever. She was defending herself. I should be pressing charges, too. The principal glared at me. Claudia, you can go back to class now. No, she's staying right here since she's the only one here decent enough to defend my child. A school full of fucking adults, and you're letting some boy, some man, touch my child. Mrs. Charles went on like this for another twenty minutes, and by the time she was done, Ma had arrived, and we were excused for the day with no more talk of suspension. And that is the end of this section. Then both Claudia and Monday go home, but this is what happened when Monday returns to school the next week. So on my page 139, Claudia narrates, On Monday morning, she stumbled into school, dazed, eyes glossy, lips white and chapped, her uniform wrinkled, filthy and her flat twists in the same unraveling wreckage that they had been after Thursday's fight. No one would have noticed her condition, except for the fact 
that she smelled soaked in piss. Ew, you stank, Shayla sneered in her homeroom. They don't give you soap over at Edboro? Shit, you smell like one of them crazies on the metro, Trevor cackled. Monday walked through the halls like a zombie that day. Kids heckled, pinching their noses as she passed. And by third period, Miss Valente brought her down to the nurse's office and gave her a fresh pair of school sweats to wear for the rest of the day. And that is the end of that section. I'm glad Miss Valente helped along with the nurse, and we'll find out that these two were really the only ones that actually reported anything and actually, like, took seriously the suspected abuse that Monday was facing. But no child should ever be in this condition, whether at home or at school. And if you see your friends, like, at any age or your kids' friends in a condition like this, please don't ignore it because it, it's definitely a sign that someone is in trouble. It's also interesting when you read further on the this constant theme of people like Monday's neighbor saying, quote, ain't no one loves her babies like Patty, end quote. Patty being Mrs. Charles, that that is. And I just want to say that I would hope that all parents love their kids and never want to hurt them, but definitely don't take things at face value. Just because they have this air of goodness or perfection, no one's ever perfect and no one is ever that good. And maybe that's just my experience in life talking, but you never really know someone until things happen. Now I'm going to switch gears and talk through the way the mandated reporters like the teachers and school administration handled the situation in the time period that Monday was missing. So after Monday and her brother August and her sister's small kid Tuesday haven't shown up for school in a month, Miss Valente and Claudia go to the school's office to see if they can get one of the admin people to contact Monday and Monday's family. So on my page 49, this is what goes down. Miss Clark shrugged and clicked her computer some more, seeming bored. She shook her head. Not registered either. Could they have moved? Miss Valente glanced down at me, eyebrow raised. Her mother still lives at the same house. I, uh, saw her. But you didn't see Monday. Miss Valente glanced back at Miss Clark with a fake smile. I know I've only been in this school for a couple of years, but back in New York, when a student doesn't show up for class nor register for school, the school follows up. Is that not the case here? A lot of students didn't return this year. Most had to move due to rent going up and stuff, but I'll pass the note along. And that's the end of that section. Then on page 97, when Miss Valente and Claudia follow up with Miss Clark at the school office, this is what happens. Remember a few weeks ago, I followed up on a student, Miss Valente said, tapping on the desk. Monday Charles, have you heard anything about her? 
Miss Clark lazily pushed a few buttons on her keyboard. No student by that name enrolled this year. Yes, we established that last time, she said. Ah, right. Try to call a few times. The phone is out of service. Social worker filed it with CFSA to follow up. Miss Valente blinked, leaning in, as if she didn't hear right. But that was weeks ago. She challenged. Anybody stop by yet? What's CFSA? I asked. Miss Clark raised an eyebrow at Miss Valente, tipping her head in my direction. Miss Valente winced. Um, it stands for Child and Family Services Agency. My tongue went dry, and I backed away from asking the million questions roaming around my head without a place to land. Also, a teacher, Mr. Hill, was asked by Claudia to call and check on Monday, and a few weeks had have passed since Claudia asked him to do this. So this is on my page 120, and Mr. Hill says, Monday? Oh, oh, right. Yes, I called, but the phone was disconnected. Yeah, I told you that. You said you had another number. Oh, thought I did, but I sent a letter to the last address on file to have her call the school. And that is the end of that section. What we find out later is that the child and family service agency workers never actually went into the home of Monday and never reported the conditions that Monday and her siblings were living in. And the shit part is, is that this happens. So, like, the school admin can't get a hold of the family. Then when the CFSA workers go to Monday's house, maybe nobody answers the door. And then they just give up and not push the issue any further. They'll fill out their reports and move on with their lives. And you can blame it on understaffing, underfunding, or just sheer negligence on the part of the agency or school admin, the mandated reporters. But it's just so disheartening. You would want to believe that the school or the child services would have the child's best interests at heart, but then there are kids that just fall through the cracks. And it's heartbreaking when you think of the cases like Gabriel Hernandez or like what happened in Texas where a mother and her boyfriend left three kids alone in an apartment with the fourth sibling's body decomposing for like 18 months. Like, if you see something, report it at a minimum. Keep following up with these people that are supposed to do the job of protecting these kids. Because no kid deserves that kind of treatment, and it's not okay when it ends in such tragedy. And I know there's a larger discussion about the fact that these services are understaffed and underfunded and can make the best people who have the best intentions going into the job as a social worker bitter by the end of it because there's really no support for them. And you know, it, it kind of makes you wonder where your tax-paying dollars are actually going to because it clearly isn't these programs that are aimed at protecting children, and it's definitely not going to the education in this country. Just saying. 
Lastly, for this section, I want to cover the police. So Claudia goes to the police after learning that the social worker talked to Miss Valente and said that Monday was at home, but Claudia wasn't buying it. So on my page 167, this is what the police officer tells Claudia when she tries to go in to file a missing persons report. Now, if your friend's really missing and she's not on this board then only a parent can file a missing persons report. And if her mother won't, the only person left would be her father or a legal guardian. I want this section to be more of like a reminder that if you suspect that someone is missing or in danger, you do not need to wait 24 hours to report it. There's a common misconception. It's been a weird thing ingrained in kind of like a national consciousness in the United States, but you don't need to wait 24 hours. You, The moment you feel it, the moment you suspect it, report it. I'm not sure what it's like in other countries, and I, I understand that in the U.S. laws and regulations can differ between the states, but I don't feel like what this officer is telling Claudia is completely correct, and obviously I can be wrong, but From my understanding, when a child goes missing and the parents aren't reporting it, and you are not the legal guardian, you can still report it. You can call for a wellness check and get something documented. And I couldn't find anything really to back up the idea that you have to be like a certain age to file a missing persons report, but Claudia is about 13 at this time, and I believe in this scene what might be happening is that the police aren't taking her seriously because she's a minor and they just want her to go away. I feel like if Claudia went in with her mother, maybe the police would have made the report or would have done a wellness check or would have just taken it more seriously if an adult was around. So for the last part of this discussion, we're going to be talking about true crime and media coverage and the underreporting to the sensationalization of what bodies, for the lack of a better word, are acceptable to be covered in media. So to start with this section, I am going to read the 911 call that Miss Valente makes to the police that eventually leads to the discovery of Monday. So, quote, Hello? Hello? Yes, my name is Michelle Valente. I'm a teacher at Warren Kent Charter School. One of my students, Monday Charles, has been missing, and I think there's something seriously wrong with her mother. She won't answer any of my questions or let me in the house. Please, you have to send someone now. Please. End quote. So after Ms. Valente makes the 911 call, the police do show up to Monday's house in which Claudia is looking at everything as it's going down. There's reporters and news crews and the police and there's the clicking of the cameras going off. There are people in the crowd that are giving bits of information of what they're seeing and hearing. And from the kind of staccato comments, we gather that 
Monday never left her house along with her brother, and they were both beaten and stuffed into a freezer. In the wake of the discovery of both August and Monday, there are several news reports that hone in on kind of these political issues. Like, for instance, the mayor announces that eight of the District of Columbia's child and family service agency workers will be fired for failing to properly address the welfare of Monday in August. And while, yes, because if eight of them failed to do their job properly, yeah, they should probably be fired. But it definitely speaks to a deeper issue within the agency. And this is by firing eight of the workers, but then not saying anything about reform or plans for a reform. It's just a cosmetic solution to a systemic problem. And in another news report, there's a kind of political agenda that gets used as an excuse as to why Miss Charles did what she did to her kids. And and the news report says this, quote, residents are hoping this will bring light to the current property conditions and stop the city's recently approved redevelopment plan which includes demolishing 500 homes and rebuilding both sale and rental properties along with retail spaces. It's not certain that the displaced residents will be approved or will receive government assistance to move back into their communities, forcing most into homeless shelters. Multiple claims suggest Miss Charles feared eviction, driving her to a mental break. And I'll circle back on this thought in just a moment. Then continuing into the fallout after the discovery of both Monday and August, there is a funeral that's held and a ton of people show up for this funeral, like the whole community. There's a ton of police to like surround the block. There are TV crews and a lot of a lot of fellow classmates, especially the ones that were bullying Monday and Claudia with like those pictures and they're they're crying and consoling each other over the death of Monday, a girl that they basically tortured, which is kind of an interesting image. The funeral becomes this kind of like media spectacle and a lot of people that Claudia doesn't even recognize are coming up to say, you know, kind words about Monday and Monday's life. And again, keep that idea in your head. I'll circle back to it in just a moment. But after the funeral occurs, there's a report on CNN where the report is that they're actually going to, what I assume, exhume, like dig back up Monday Charles and re-examine her body for sexual trauma, to which Claudia's dad hears it on the news and just turns off the news. <laughs> and I don't blame him because it's just like, I don't know if adding insult to injury is the right phrasing, but the child already suffered so much in life that it's like this morbid continual interest in her death that just will never let her finally be at peace. I don't know if that made sense, but it makes you feel a little weird about it. So that was my quick summary of the discovery slash fallout. And when you read this book, there's so much more to what is going on and what goes into this particular 
section. As always, please read it for yourself so that you can feel the full effect. I made just like a quick bullet point summary so that there's a context to the final part of this discussion. And before we talk about how race is a factor in all of this, I do want to say that every death is tragic. It doesn't matter the race, age, sexual orientation, class, gender, identity. When a life ends, it's sad. And no amount of reporting, no amount of news or podcast coverage is going to bring people back from the dead. And it's tragic when people disappear without a trace. Again, no matter the race, age, sexual orientation, class, gender, identity, it's devastating. And the work that media outlets and internet sleuths and podcasters and everyone who covers true crime, for the most part, do help in spreading the word and the awareness around these things. And I was looking through the websites of the different charity organizations to find ones to put in the description for this episode. And each one of them had sections about, you know, people that are missing and descriptions of what they look like, who they were. It's heartbreaking because these people that I never knew, they had lives. They had things that they wanted out of life. They had families and friends. And there are hundreds and thousands missing people. And only a handful I've heard of. And there's so many I never knew about. So I just want to say that my stance is that no life is less important than another. None of these people had it coming nor deserved it. And I believe that all their stories should be shared. So how the concept of race factors into all of this can be described through using the term missing white girl syndrome, which was coined by journalist Sarah Stillman. Stillman describes this syndrome in her essay, which is entitled The Missing White Girl Syndrome, as the way in which the media is more likely to generate a sympathetic response and gain viewership from a white woman's disappearance than a person of color. So, the national headline coverage for cases like Jean Benet Ramsey, Gabby Petito, and, and Lacey Peterson, to just name a few, these were young women, young white women, kind of upper middle class from the stories and the pictures that were shared. They seemed like beautiful people inside and out. They were just at the start of their lives, and they were this girl next door, this innocent body that faced such a horrific end. When I say these characteristics, this is what typically media outlets are looking for to sell a story. Sex workers, a poor kid, a person of color, or even a homeless person typically won't make the news unless it's absolutely horrific like the case of Gabriel Hernandez, or those kids that were left alone in the apartment in Texas, or Shanquella Robinson. But this is because media will often spin an image of groups like sex workers, low-income, people of color, or even the homeless, as groups of people that death 
is natural for them. It's ordinary. It's insignificant. It is a product of the environment that they're in. So when it happens to them, it's insignificant. From an example from the website, themissingny.nycitynewsservice.com, there was an example of the case of Natalie Holloway. Natalie Holloway went missing in Aruba in 2005. Her story, her life, the fact that she had blonde hair, blue eyes, was 18 years old, was reported in the New York Times for weeks, was headline national news coverage for weeks and months after the incident of her disappearance. All the while, around the same time, maybe like a month later from Natalie's disappearance, a 25-year-old woman, Latoya Figueroa, was five months pregnant and went missing after a doctor's appointment in Philadelphia. Latoya Figueroa was a woman of African-American and Hispanic descent, and no one except a blogger from allspinzone.com named Richard Blair wrote about it and put pressure on Nancy Grace at CNN to give her story some attention. And it was only from Blair putting that pressure that somehow a writer at the New York Times got wind of it and kind of made one of the very few mainstream articles about Latoya's case. And it definitely brings up a lot of questions on how does the news decide its stories and who to report on and who not to report on. And it this is a real rough topic, but it's something to think about, especially when you are going through like the true crime catalog and you see the ones that are often reported on and you'll see this pattern of what are the most quote unquote popular stories, which I think arguably John Benet Ramsey, a very, very young girl who was a pageant queen, pretty white continuously is being talked about in the true crime community. It, it's a very puzzling case, no doubt, but her case has definitely had a lot more coverage than a lot of other young kids of color. And again, I am not at all saying that Natalie Holloway, Gabby Petito, Lacey Peterson, and John Benet Ramsey didn't deserve the attention from the media they did. They deserve justice. And I believe full-heartedly that they should be remembered by the life that they lived and not by the ends that they met. And I think sometimes in the true crime community, it can really focus on the death aspect or the person that killed the victim. Kind of like when you're looking at Monday's story and it keeps getting re-examined, like in that news clip of wanting to re-examine Monday's body for sexual trauma, like it's so focused on the horrific aspects of what happened and the child that was Monday gets lost in the noise. The fact that she loved to read, the fact that she had a bubbly personality, the fact that she had a bright future and she loved her friend Claudia. Those things often can get lost in the constant re-examining of these tragedies. Monday was a young Black girl from a neighborhood that was facing extinction, from increasing evictions and gentrification. 
She was a young black girl that was struggling to be loved and accepted by people in a society that did not notice when she went missing and pretended that it was a normal occurrence. She wasn't a sellable story for the media in the time that she was missing. She was only sellable in her death. When you look at the sites for the Black and Missing Foundation or even the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, you read through the stories of all these kids that are so similar to Mondays, where they're missing, but they never make the news. And before transitioning for the final thoughts on this discussion, I just want to leave you with a statistic that I found on elonuniversity.edu, and the essay is entitled, America's Black Children Are Missing at Disproportionately High Rates and How the Amber Alert is at Fault by Julia Kearney. It's a very interesting read, and I do have it listed in the show notes, but from this, Kearney writes, quote, According to data from the 2019 United States Census, people who are Black or African American make up 13.4% of the United States population. However, nearly 40% of missing persons are people of color. Black children make up about 33% of all missing child cases. So in the United States, there is an Amber Alert system. So when a child is abducted or is suspected to have been abducted, there will be a, you know, like a notification on your phone these days, but there will be an alert that is sent out throughout the county of what to be on the lookout for. And what this article further talks about is that there are strict criterias that have to be met for a child to receive an Amber Alert. and. That criteria is that there must be reasonable evidence that an abduction occurred. The child must be believed to be in imminent danger of serious bodily injury or death. And there must be enough descriptive information about the victim and the abductor. The child must be under the age of 17 and the information has to be entered into the National Crime Information Center. If a child is listed as a runaway, an Amber Alert will not be sent out for the child. And this kind of further pushes back on the child not being able to receive the media coverage, police, or government resources to recover them. And it's kind of like this legal loophole that police can use to delay the response. And based on research conducted by Jada L. Moss in their study titled The Forgotten Victims of Missing White Woman Syndrome, an examination of legal measures that contribute to the lack of search and recovery of missing Black girls and women, Black missing children are disproportionately labeled as runaways and thus decreases their chance of gaining assistance in their recovery. The point that I'm trying to make ultimately is that media outlets will gravitate to what they feel are going to be sellable stories. So like the most innocent victim and the more horrific things that happen is often what's going to sell. And race and prettiness standards do factor into all of this. 
along with gender dynamics, but this podcast is is already way too long. The whole enchilada, the whole point is that nobody was looking for Monday. There was no coverage during her disappearance. There was no one aware that she was gone and no one cared until it was too late and the unimaginable already happened. Tons of people and strangers and media outlets showed up for Monday at her funeral. But the only person that showed up for Monday in her life was Claudia. And then there's the politicization of her death, using it as a fuel for change, which is kind of morbid. And gentrification, just since it was mentioned in one of the news articles about Monday's death, is an issue that does cause harm and stress to many families. You know, they're getting kicked out of their neighborhoods because corporate America decides to move in and push away the quote-unquote undesirables. But it's not the reason why Monday is dead. I don't know. I guess I just, I keep getting hung up on this idea that this political agenda is kind of being used to almost minimize her death and her legacy. And, you know, it's this weird excuse for why the death of a child happened. And it puts blame on something so abstract when the reason she died was because the systems that were in place to protect her failed her from her family, the school, child and family services, the media at large, and the police. And that's the most horrific part. Kids go missing and every single story is a tragedy. Whether they're found alive, dead, or still missing, it can happen to anyone at any age. Often the perpetrators of crimes against children are the ones closest to them. The people that suffer in the aftermath are the ones that cared the most. It could be the parents, their friends, other family, entire communities. The people that care will always carry a torch for their loved ones and will fight for them, even when the rest of the world doesn't seem to care. You know, resilience. Kind of like the quote from the beginning. There is a way that the media picks and chooses stories of crime to publicize, and a part of it is based on racial bias. Victims from minority communities rarely get the spotlight unless it's horrific. But independent journalism and podcasters like like Affirmative Murder, Sisters Who Kill, Black and Missing and Missing, Black and Cold, Murder in the Black, in Killing Color, and Black Girl Gone, to name a few, who are doing the work and making sure the stories of Black and Brown folks don't go under the radar and aren't forgotten. So if you've made it this far and heard those suggestions, please give them a listen. These podcasts are very insightful and, and treat each of the cases with such care and understanding. So please support the incredible work that they are doing. And not to be on a soapbox, but if you've seen a Have You Seen Me ad, or if you see a news report about a missing child, or if you hear something or see something, call the police, make a report, and don't let anyone tell you that you can't. In the description, I have linked a few of the charities that I found. So please check them out and keep your eyes open for red flags. Thank you for making it to the end of this episode. Seriously, I know this probably wasn't 
the easiest topic to listen to. It definitely wasn't the easiest emotionally for me to research. And I do tip my hat off to every single true crime reporter from the people that work on Dateline to the podcast that I listed before. It's a lot of emotional work. But I do hope that you take some time to read Monday's Not Coming and let me know how you're feeling about this discussion. And if you've read the book, I would definitely love to hear your opinions on it. So next episode, I will be talking about Martha Wells' The Murderbot Diaries. And specifically, I will be going over the first novella in this series called All Systems Red. You know, we'll see where the discussion takes us. We'll probably be delving into some AI and diving into some philosophy, some existentialism, maybe. Who knows? Might get crazy. But yeah, it should be fun. And I'm excited. So stay tuned for that. This was suggested by Meg from Thay's Gaze and Bookworm Babes. And, you know, if you're not already listening to that podcast, please, if you haven't already, go support. At the time of this podcast being out, they are at chapters 8 through 10 of Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon. So definitely head on over there and give them a listen. They have a really insightful and fun discussion around the events that are happening in the book. If you'd like to keep up to date on the happenings with this podcast, slide on over to at growlery underscore on Instagram and check it out along with all the episode artwork. And at the moment, that is where I have most of my announcements for new things that are happening with the podcast with next episode it's going to be the six month mark of me being like responsible. I guess for me, it's a personal milestone of like keeping consistent with something. But enough of that rambling. And as always, if you feel inclined, please let me know what you think about today's episode and leave a review wherever you're listening or send me a message on my website or email me at lizfromthegrowlery at gmail.com. I would seriously love to hear your thoughts, feedback, random stories, suggestions, anything at all. Again, the contact info is in the show notes. And you're probably tired of it, but I'm going to say thank you again for making it to the end of this episode. You are a rock star. Don't let anyone tell you any different. And until next time, feel free to speak up when something's not right. Trust your gut. Feel free to learn about how others experience the world we live in. Feel free to keep fighting for the people you love to never be forgotten. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you for listening. Bye!